Hello, and welcome to episode number 48 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. Over the past couple of episodes of the Point of Convergence podcast, we've been examining two distinct but related matters. Number one, that various intel sources, sources trusted by credible individuals such as Australian journalist Ross Coulthard and British intelligence analyst Frank Milburn, have divulged the apparent existence of various factions of future humans who have been intervening in affairs in our present time in order to impact the potential arising of a cataclysmic event that lies, allegedly, in our not very distant future. And number two, that further evolution, especially after something like a cataclysmic environmental event, could very likely give rise to a species of neo-humans who would look very much like the quintessential gray aliens we've all become familiar with. It should be clearly understood, as I just noted above, that while these matters may be related, the notion that at least some of the gray aliens contactees slash abductees have interacted with are time-traveling future neo-humans can, and I would argue should, be considered on its own merits. And I think the grounds for this possibility are remarkably compelling, especially once you really dig into the pertinent details. Much of the evidence we'll discuss today in that regard comes from anthropologist and evolutionary biologist Michael Masters' book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Not only does Masters lay out a thorough and convincing case that so-called gray aliens are best understood as being a later arising along the same genetic line that began with chimpanzees and later gave rise to modern homo sapiens, but he makes an equally strong case that two-way time travel is not only a theoretical possibility, but a very likely eventuality based on our ongoing technological development. He also clarifies that many of the seemingly unworkable paradoxes that arise with the notion of time travel are rooted in our misapprehension of how time actually works, and indeed, in what it actually is. In today's podcast, in addition to a deeper dive into Master's bold but well-supported arguments, we'll examine additional lines of evidence that relate to the intel reports suggesting timeline manipulation by factions of future humans may already be happening. Are time-traveling future neo-humans the missing link in making sense of the UFO phenomenon that has eluded us for decades? or at least of making sense of a large swath of the data and activity and interactions observed? These are precisely the matters we'll seek to unravel in this, the 48th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's podcast, I would just like to remind you that this is part three of three in this series. To make more sense of what we'll discuss today, I would suggest you go back to episode number 46 to get the first episode, then 47, and then come back and listen to this, episode 48. Now, I'd like to give my usual caveat here that what we're discussing today, the possibility that some of these greys may be neo-humans from the future, is just one aspect of a much larger phenomenon. 
And as I've said many times, I believe there are numerous sources behind this phenomenon. And indeed, part of the challenge in understanding it and part of the mistake people make in trying to make sense of it is that they assume it's a singular actor and a single agenda. And then they try to make sense of all these phenomena as if they are the actions of a singular actor which becomes largely impossible because in reality they are arising from different sources. So just to clarify, in addition to future humans or a kind of creature that is somehow related to us from our future, I also believe that extraterrestrials are involved in the phenomenon in general as are interdimensionals. And as we'll get to later in this podcast, it's not even so easy to separate those notions, extraterrestrial and interdimensional, from what we're going to discuss today, which is extratempestrials, that is, beings from beyond our time. I'd also like to remind you that the UFO phenomenon clearly involves a variety of other entities, not just gray aliens or reptilians or Nordics or mantids, but also shadow people and cryptids and portals that may very well be wormholes between galaxies or between realities. All of that is in the mix. That is partly why this is so fascinating, but also so complex to unravel. So with that caveat aside, let's dive back into this, part three, discussing this notion that some of these aliens may actually be us from the future. Now let's jump into the specific intel as it applies to this notion that time travelers have come back in order to address some sort of cataclysm that lies in our near future. As I've mentioned before on previous episodes in this series, one or more factions wants to help us prevent this cataclysm from happening, while other faction or factions want to actually ensure it does happen. Specifically, the greys are supposedly on this side of the equation because they want the cataclysm to happen because it gives rise to their genesis. Now, in the last two episodes, we discussed how objects in space may be the threat that we really face, that this may be the root of this environmental disaster that brings about this cataclysm, either because something directly impacts the Earth or it comes so close to the Earth that it creates an electromagnetic pulse, which basically fries all of the circuitry of our entire techno-economic grid. Now, in terms of objects in space, another possibility is that an additional planet or planetoid and its debris come around once in a while. If this is the case, and there is some evidence that this is the case, then this planetoid and its debris may be the source of this potential cataclysm. Now, what are the chances we could be surprised by something out there? Well, to many people's surprise, the chances are actually pretty good, unfortunately. Again, we talked about the Chelyabinsk event that happened in 2013 in a previous episode. We know that that event caught us by surprise because the object came from behind the sun, and we are largely blinded in that direction because of the intensity of the sun. Now, that's shocking to many people that we're so exposed to objects from outer space that we don't even see until they're basically here. Of course, that means even if we did have defenses, we might not have the time to act in order to prevent a cataclysm. Now, ironically, while many people are busy speculating about alien invasions, the real danger may be near-Earth debris that we're just not paying close enough attention to. Indeed, some of these intel sources that I've mentioned before, speaking to people like Frank Milburn and Ross Coulthart, have expressed extreme frustration that there hasn't been more of a dedicated effort to ensuring we can stop such objects from impacting the Earth. 
Now, when it comes to previous Earth cataclysms, there are historians and archaeologists and anthropologists who believe that it's happened several times and perhaps even wiped out previous sophisticated civilizations on the Earth. Civilizations for which we largely no longer have any record. Civilizations such as Atlantis. Graham Hancock is one of those people. He argues that our tendency towards uniformitarianism, the notion that events on the Earth have always proceeded pretty much exactly as they have in our recorded history, which of course is a huge assumption. Hancock and others believe that actually there have been numerous repeated cataclysms, and perhaps that these cataclysms happen cyclically, meaning that they come on a repeated schedule. And as we've discussed before, there are some, such as Hancock and others, who suggest that time is coming due once again for a reoccurrence of these cataclysms, whether that be an asteroid, a comet, a magnetic pole shift that we talked about, even recently, I heard about the possibility of a supervolcano eruption, which would massively impact the Earth. Now, speaking of potentially corroborating evidence towards this notion that a cataclysm is going to happen that will massively impact the Earth and even more so impact our civilization, we should remember that many experiencers have been shown apocalyptic images of the Earth. The Earth either exploding or on fire, what have you. Susie Hansen is a helpful case in point. She is an experiencer who's had contact events since she was a young child, and she repeatedly continues to have these events and has a good working relationship with these others, many of them which look like greys. Now, she reports being recruited as a kind of ambassador between these others and us, and that her role will be to help us when a cataclysm does occur. So what I'm saying is she's basically been prepared to expect such a cataclysm, and that she and many others have been chosen to help the human population when this cataclysm occurs. So in other words, the implication is this will be in her lifetime. And as far as I understand, Susie's in her 60s or so, I believe. So this, again, could potentially line up within 10 years kind of timeline for this cataclysm that we've heard about from these intel sources. So that, along with other lines of evidence I've discussed on our previous podcast episodes, lends some support to this notion that a cataclysm may indeed lie in our future. I would now like to add that there is more than just these others supposedly telling us this is going to happen. Because as commenters have pointed out to me, what if these others are simply lying? How do we know they're telling us the truth about this cataclysm? Well, that's a fair point because, of course, even experiencers like Susie Hansen potentially could be being deceived by these others. Do we have any corroborating evidence that doesn't arise from them? Well, as it turns out, we do. Part of what's been going on, apparently, by this control group in charge of this particular aspect of the UFO phenomenon is that remote viewing has been used in order to try to ascertain what is happening in our future. Now, we've discussed remote viewing before. We discussed how remote viewing was a very successful program run by the CIA for 20 years. And what I've heard is that even when the program supposedly shut down, it basically just shifted to the Department of Defense instead of the CIA, and now has gone deeply black. And I don't know this for sure. I have heard that superstar remote viewers are involved in this program because obviously you would want the very best of the very best. But people like Joseph McMonagall, perhaps, who is one of the best in the world, are likely involved in this program in order to try to peer into the future to see what lies ahead. 
Now, some people may balk at the notion that remote viewing could actually be useful, evidential kind of data in this case. But actually, the history of remote viewing is remarkably successful, as I mentioned before. Very accurate intel has been obtained time and time again. And we know this because the data obtained was corroborated by other lines of evidence. Because, of course, the intelligence services do the best they can to always corroborate whatever evidence is obtained. In one case I'm aware of, Joseph McMonagall was actually tasked with trying to find out more about a bomb that went off in an airliner in the past. He was, in fact, able to remote view what was going on inside the airplane before the bomb detonated and was able to provide information about where the bomb actually was, and that lined up with other data points. What's even more fascinating about that case is supposedly people on board the plane could actually somehow see Joseph McMonagall. Perhaps they saw kind of an ethereal form of him, but people apparently noticed him which is very interesting for numerous reasons. One, because of course this in itself is a kind of time travel. And even though he can't directly change anything, he couldn't put a seat up or down on that plane. But when people see him, that of course might change their behavior. So in an indirect way, you're actually changing the timeline by remote viewing. McMonagall has also been used to learn about an ancient civilization on Mars. And again, this is documented as having happened. You can go online and find illustrations that McMonagall made of the supposed beings and the structures he saw on Mars in the distant, distant past. And just to remind you, when a remote viewer is given a task such as this, they don't know what the target is. They just are given coordinates or some sort of reference number, and then they just describe what they see. Sometimes they draw what they see. McMonagall has done this time and time again and has demonstrated his clear talent for this. Now, it may not just be an innate talent, because as it turns out, there was an event in McMonagall's life much like Jack Sarfati that we talked about in a couple episodes ago, which is very interesting and potentially very pertinent to this discussion because it may involve a time loop. You remember that in episode one, we talked about Jack Sarfati apparently being contacted by a Tic Tac-like vehicle in 1953. And he was communicated by the conscious AI inside that craft that this was technology from humanity of the future. And then later on, of course, we know that Sarfati became a world-class physicist. And to some degree, his contribution may very well end up leading to something like the development of Tic Tac technology. So there you have kind of a time loop going on. In a similar way, what's interesting about McMonagall is that in the 70s, he had an encounter with a UFO while he was in the military. This UFO appeared above him, shined a bright light down that affected him and another person that he was with. And ever since then, McMonagall has had remarkable abilities, abilities such as the capacity to remote view to an astounding degree, to a degree that makes him basically one of the very best in the world. So again, there you also have a kind of time loop where some sort of intelligence, potentially from the future, contacted him and changed him in some way in the 1970s, and now he may be being used to remote view the future. Again, a kind of time loop might be taking place there. Now, I just want to clarify, I don't know that McMonagall is the one that is being used to remote view the future, 
My suspicion is that he is because he's one of the very, very best. Even if it's not him, you can guarantee they're using some of the very best in the world because, of course, this is such an important task. But pay attention to the notion of time loops because that is key to all of this. And even though it runs counter to how we think about time, apparently it is a natural function of space-time. So now that we've covered in more detail some of the intel applying to this supposed cataclysm and other lines of evidence that might support that, Let's move now to Master's argument, what I would call his masterful argument, that these others, or at least some of them, may very well indeed be us from the future. Just to clarify, from his point of view, it's almost guaranteed they must be us from the future. He is very confident in that conclusion. Now, before we get to his very soundly based arguments based on evolutionary biology, he does bring up something that is interesting. He brings up the Santilli alien autopsy film. Now, we know that that film itself is likely a hoax, almost guaranteed to be. But there is suggestions that that film is based on evidence that is actually real. And if that's the case, then from Master's point of view, it is remarkable how human-like that alien looks. It looks like something that must be related to us. And to add to that, and of course this is somewhat speculative, there have been people who have suggested that one of the surprises when a supposed alien autopsy happened, perhaps on the beings recovered at Roswell, was that they actually shared a genetic lineage with us. They found DNA in this being that matched our own, and vice versa. This was a shock to the system, of course, because in that day and age, the assumption was this being was extraterrestrial. No one was expecting to find DNA that matched human DNA. But again, according to some sources, that was what was found and that was part of the shock and may indeed have even led to part of the reason why this has been covered up, because the assumption is the American public and the world public couldn't handle this. But again, much of that line of argument is speculative. We can't prove that. We don't know for sure what happened with that autopsy. However, we need not rely on speculation. And that's because Dr. Michael Masters, professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana, suggests that long-standing and repeatedly attested observations of the appearance of these others suggest they must be related to us. And I'd like to quote from Masters' book here. Quote, the physical form of these individuals is remarkably consistent across abductee reports. Furthermore, the physical traits described are also consistent with what we would expect to see in the morphological form of our distant descendants, based on prominent long-term trends in our cerebral, ocular, cranial, facial, and postcranial anatomy throughout the last six million years of hominin evolution, unquote. Now, what's interesting is Masters points out that when you look at ancient humans and even before that chimpanzees and you look at the trends, the biological trends of evolution that led to modern humans, you see this trend towards smaller faces, larger brains. And he suggests when you continue that trend, what you end up with is something very much like a gray alien. Quoting again from his book, quote, Considering only these most enduring trends throughout the hominin past, our bipedal hominin descendants are likely to possess an even rounder neurocranium situated above even smaller faces, which exhibit an even greater degree of pedomorphosis. 
With this in mind, one can appreciate how the vast majority of reports of close encounters which describe alien beings with these same craniofacial characteristics are quite simply us as more evolved members of the same hominin lineage." Unquote. Now, just to make this crystal clear, what Masters is arguing is that it's not just that they look remarkably similar to us and have a hominid form which suggests they must come from us in some way. They must be a further evolution of our form. He's also arguing that when you look at the trends of evolution from chimpanzees to modern humans and you look at that trajectory and you continue that trajectory, what you will end up with is something very much like a gray alien that has a smaller face, a kind of more childlike face, a larger brain, etc. It's a very compelling argument. Now, as part of my research for this series, I reached out to Michael Masters to ask him some questions. One of the questions I asked him, because I had several people ask me, is how long it might take for something like the modern human form to evolve into something like a gray alien kind of form, if they are indeed us in the future. Now, of course, there are many factors that determine that kind of eventuality, but this is what Masters said to me when I corresponded with him. Quote, if our project gets picked up, we're planning on doing some 3D computer modeling with geometric morphometrics to get a better answer to that question. Assuming they're not AI, which I don't think they are, and assuming the accelerating rate of evolutionary change continues, which it should considering how long it already has, then I think at minimum we're looking at 8,000 to 12,000 years though there are other issues related to sex, age, and geographic variation I've discussed on various shows before." Unquote. So that covers some of Master's very compelling arguments based on his expertise in this area, suggesting that these others, at least some of them, are very likely to be our genetic descendants. Let's now move to the issue of time travel. How likely is it, how close are we to understanding it and actually making it actionable. Well, Einstein is known to have said something like, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Now, we know now that time perception changes in proportion to velocity. If you travel away at the speed of light, for instance, exactly, when you look back at the Earth, you would see a snapshot, an unchanging snapshot, because you're speeding away at the same speed as the light. In another example, if you happen to be on a distant planet about 65 million light years from the Earth, when you peered with a really powerful telescope on the Earth, you might find a T-Rex staring back at you, because of course what you're seeing is the Earth as it was 65 million years ago, because that's how long it's taken for the image to get to you, for the photons to get to you, because you are 65 million light years away. Now there's also the issue of time dilation. The twin example is a prime example here. The idea is if you have one twin who gets on a spacecraft traveling close to the speed of light very quickly and then comes back to Earth and meets up with his twin on Earth, the twin on Earth will now be perhaps an old man while the twin who was on the spacecraft hardly aged at all. We know this is the case and that's called time dilation. Now, part of the trickiness here is that the way we experience time in such a linear way, such a predictable way, our entire lives, and because we all share this persistent illusion, as Einstein put it, 
it's hard for us to wrap our heads around how time actually works, what the actual structure of space-time is thought to be by physicists. For instance, one of the most bizarre elements of this is that with a time loop, you don't actually need an origin event. Now, the irony is, in school we were always taught, make sure you show your work so we know how you came up with the answer. You remember that? Well, here, with a time travel vehicle, you don't necessarily have to have a moment where the actual technology had that aha moment where someone figured it out. You can rather have a self-consistent loop where you have someone traveling from the future to the past, then it happens that that vehicle lands in the past, and this loops back to the future. You do not need the moment in between where the precipitating event of discovery actually took place. Now again, that completely flies in the face of our understanding of logic, but apparently this is completely consistent with our understanding of space-time. As long as space-time is internally consistent, then this can be the case. And in fact, when we think back to incidents like Jack Serfati and Joseph McMonagall, which was more speculative, with Serfati we know he was visited by this craft in 1953, and we know that in a roundabout way, Serfati is involved in what may eventually become the arrival of Tic Tac technology, which many people believe is actually a time travel vehicle, because if you warp space-time, by definition, you are moving through time as well as space. So what I'm getting at here is that many arguments against the notion that some aliens are time-traveling neo-humans from the future relates to a discrepancy between our experience of time and its actual structure or nature. Closed time-like curves mess with our conception of linearity, and yet these closed time-like curves, which I just discussed, are an implication of Einstein's equations. Now, a very tricky and perplexing, and to some people disturbing, implication of time travel as many physicists understand it, is that the notion of free will doesn't really exist. All we really have is the illusion of free will. It feels like we're making decisions. It feels like cause and effect takes place in a predictable way. But physics experiments have shown that you could actually run events backwards and they would still fit the math would still work. And this is interesting when you think about what experiencers have been told and what they sometimes experience when they're on board craft, or even people who have near-death experiences have a similar kind of experience. What they report is that we kind of choose to forget the larger aspects of who we are that runs over multiple timelines and sometimes runs over multiple iterations as different species. We choose to forget all of that so that we can enter a lifetime and learn things in a real way, in a way that feels real and that is meaningful and therefore changes us, evolves our kind of soul, our true spirit nature. So in some ways that lines up with what we're saying with physics here, that free will really doesn't exist. What we have is the illusion of free will. It feels like the decisions we make have impact, have consequence when actually, according to physics, what reality might be more like is a block of space-time in four dimensions that basically has everything already complete. The past, present, future are just these illusions we experience as we move through this block, but the block already exists. Everything that has ever happened or ever will happen already exists. It's just that we don't experience it that way when we're living this human iteration. 
again, it's very interesting how you get alignment between certain spiritual conceptions and physics and certain conceptions that people come to understand when they're on board UFO craft or with these others or when they've had a near-death experience and how that lines up with how physics understands this. Now, speaking of time travel and the notion that vehicles like Tic Tacs are actually time travel vehicles, Masters points out an interesting observation when it comes to what people see when they look at these objects, and specifically when they appear and disappear, or at least it looks like that to the observer. This is what Masters says in this regard, quote, A fascinating aspect of reports of close encounters is that IFOs, by the way, he uses the term IFO to mean identified flying object, IFOs are commonly observed appearing or disappearing, often while maintaining the same position in the sky. This is important in the context of the current time travel model because if something abruptly appears or disappears in our three observable dimensions of space, it is a very good indication that it has just changed its position in the only other observable dimension, time. This regularly reported occurrence, while seemingly bizarre from the standpoint of our conventional notion of linear time, is actually an expected outcome of time machines entering or exiting a specific region of space-time." Now also, in terms of the tech that would enable time travel, Masters quotes Dr. Clifford Johnson who talks about this. Quote, According to Dr. Clifford Johnson, a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Southern California, we tend to think of gravity as very strong. After all, it's what binds us to the Earth. But actually, of all the forces we know in nature, gravity is the weakest. Let me give you a number. It's 10 to the power 40 times weaker than electromagnetism. That's a one with 40 zeros after it. The extreme difference between the force of gravity and the electromagnetic force points to the role that the latter may someday play in helping us finally break free of the antiquated vector-based combustion engine propulsion technologies of the present era. If we are able to develop an aircraft that can harness and control the electromagnetic force against the weaker force of gravity, this could fundamentally transform the way we travel and the speed with which we get around the world as well. Furthermore, one of the best shapes for opposing Earth's gravity, once we no longer require wings and tubes to fly, is likely to be a disc shape which can counter the force of gravity more homogeneously across its symmetrical base while rotating in the air to maintain lateral stability." Unquote. Now, another quote I would like to offer in terms of this closed time-like curve that I talked about before and how that relates to time travel and how this is very complex, hard to imagine for us because we experience time in a linear way. But this is the way the physics actually works and how you could actually create a time travel vehicle and not have inconsistent or paradoxical travel to the past or the future. Quoting from Master's book, quote, Remarkably, as light cones dip over in association with the warpage of proximate space-time, world lines within them can deviate from a strictly past-to-future linear trajectory. This means that anyone or anything traveling along a world line that lies within the margins of a tilted light cone in their localized region of space-time would now be permitted to travel into the global past by means of this newly formed CTC, closed time-like curve. 
According to the astrophysicists Francisco Lobo and Paulo Crawford, a closed timelike curve allows time travel in the sense that an observer, which travels on a trajectory in space-time along this curve, returns to an event which coincides with the departure. The arrow of time leads forward as measured locally by the observer, but globally he, she may return to an event in the past. Additionally, according to Leo C. Stein, NASA Einstein Fellow in the Department of Astronomy at Cornell University, a closed timelike curve is a trajectory that's perfectly normal everywhere, always sticking to the rules of moving in a timelike direction, always going locally forward in time and yet ends up back where and when it starts. The existence of a CTC in some space-time would mean that a time machine is possible just by going along that trajectory and without violating any laws of physics." Unquote. Now that passage I just read helped point out how you could have time travel without having paradoxes, but perhaps that's still not clear to you. It is difficult to understand, no doubt. For instance, we've all heard about the so-called grandfather paradox. What would happen if you went back into the past and killed your grandfather so that he could never give birth to your mother or your father? Therefore, how could you ever be born? That's how the paradox basically is described. Well, apparently this just isn't really the way things are. That's not actually how space-time is structured. That paradox only exists in our illusory understanding of reality. Let me quote from Master's book here. Quote, More recently, at the University of Queensland in Australia, Physicist Tim Ralph and his PhD student Martin Ringbauer led a team of researchers who were able to simulate Deutsch's model experimentally for the first time. In their 2014 Nature Communications paper titled Experimental Simulation of Closed Timelike Curves, they confirmed many aspects of Deutsch's 20-year-old theory, particularly how it relates to the classic grandfather paradox. More specifically, Deutsch's theory of probabilities and particles entering and exiting a CTC was examined using a photon with its polarization encoded, as well as a second photon that would act as a past embodiment of the first, or a kind of stunt double, in the time loop simulation they performed. In this way, they could test Deutsch's self-consistency solution by measuring the polarization of the second photon after it had interacted with the first, averaged across multiple trials. According to co-author Tim Ralph, the state we got at our output, the second photon at the simulated exit of the CTC, was the same as that of our input, the first encoded photon at the CTC entrance. This result clearly corroborates the earlier work of David Deutsch. Of course, we're not really sending anything back in time, but the simulation allows us to study weird evolutions normally not allowed in quantum mechanics. Even though Ralph and Ringbauer did not actually send anything back in time, this experiment does contribute to a growing body of work, as well as a growing consensus among physicists, that backward time travel is not only possible, but it is also paradox-free. These studies demonstrate that no one can change anything in the past, given that their actions already exist as an interwoven part of the past. As such, self-consistency is not a conscious choice made by those who time travel, but instead is a simple byproduct of existing as part of a different period, which has always possessed embedded elements of another time.
According to Friedman et al., in their 1990 paper, Couchy Problem in Space-Times with Closed Time-Like Curves, if CTCs are allowed and if the above vision of theoretical physics accommodation with them turns out to be more or less correct, then what will this imply about the philosophical notion of free will for humans and other intelligent beings? It certainly will imply that intelligent beings cannot change the past. Such change is incompatible with the principle of self-consistency. Unquote. So all that is to say, basically, the notion is this demonstrates that when apparent paradoxes arise, the problem is not in the reality, but in our flawed conception of it, anchored by our biologically induced delusional experience of time as linear and unidirectional. Now, on the one hand, that passage helps us understand how time travel could exist without running into paradoxes, that the paradoxes are really only a misapprehension based on our illusory understanding of space-time. But of course, that also makes one question whether or not these others, if they are us from the future, could actually come back and change anything. According to what we just read, in some ways, the answer would be no. But again, this may come down to how you look at it, how you conceive of this, which perspective you look at it from. It is very complex, no doubt. But the bottom line I think we should take away from that passage is that time travel is not only conceivable and is not only possible, but it's also very actionable. And it's very likely the kind of technology we will likely develop in the not too distant future. Now, as I think is fairly clear after the past three episodes, the time traveling model, the future human hypothesis, is a very strong contender in my perspective to explain much of the data we're seeing. Of course, it's not the only possibility. There are other ways you could make sense of the data. For instance, there might have been a cosmic seeding that happened in the distant past by some other intelligence, perhaps by some sophisticated alien intelligence, that seeded humanoid kind of life across the galaxy. And that would explain why these others look so much like us. Another possibility is that they are coming from an alternate Earth, and perhaps that it's not so much about past or present or future as it is alternate realities, where evolution perhaps took a different trajectory, and that's why they look like that rather than like us. In fact, when you think about any of the typical types of aliens that look quite Earth-like, whether they're mantids or whether they're reptilians, they still often look like creatures that may have arisen on the Earth. So again, there's a couple different options there. They may be from our future, or they may be examples of the evolutionary trend that happened in parallel realities, in alternate Earths. Now, if time travel is in the mix, then conceivably, these extra tempestrial greys could have populated the galaxy and thus become extraterrestrial greys. And they might still need us because of the genetic variants we offer as their ancestors, which I talked about in a previous podcast. And this is what I meant in the beginning when I said that these hard lines between extraterrestrial, interdimensional, and extratempestrial, i.e. time traveling, is perhaps not so clearly delineated. And this probably says more about the inadequacy, the insufficiency of our categories than it does about the nature of the UFO phenomenon itself. And now I'd like to leave you with a few concluding thoughts. Firstly, if time travel is a factor within the UFO phenomenon, then things become even more complex than they already were. I think that's clear after what we've discussed today. This complexity is no reason to reject the notion of time travel, however. 
That would be trading truth for preference. Whatever's going on, we have to grapple with it. I'd also like to point out that people like Frank Milburn and Ross Coulthard and myself generally have allergies to outlandish, unsupported conspiracy theories. We don't tend to like those kinds of arguments. However, this intel is being provided by trusted assets. And importantly, it works for the most part within Master's compelling argument for time-traveling neo-human greys. But again, and very importantly, while these are of course related, and here I speak of Master's argument that these are likely future humans visiting us, and the matter of the intel that has arisen suggesting that these future humans are trying to change our timelines as it applies to some cataclysm. You can accept one while rejecting the other. Personally, I'm more interested in you really weighing the evidence for Master's hypothesis because I think it's very compelling. When it comes to modeling reality, physicists look for elegance. If it's too messy, it's likely not accurate. Now, as we've said already, this theory could still be incorrect, even though it is a very elegant solution to some of the data, to much of the data. But I think based on our current knowledge and model of reality, which of course is likely to change, but based on what we believe now about reality, taking into account the data arising from experiencer interactions with these beings and the behavior of the craft observed, that this is one of the best current hypotheses we have available. Occam's razor is a principle of theory, construction, or evaluation according to which, other things being equal, explanations that posit fewer entities or fewer kinds of entities are to be preferred to explanations that posit more. Now when you think of that in terms of the future human hypothesis, it is a simpler solution in many ways that better fits with Occam's razor when you consider that these others are actually us but from the future. Instead of two entities, an ET and a human being, you have a single entity, a human being who evolves to become a neo-human grey. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash exoacadamian. And a big thanks to those who have become patrons. But until next time, friends... From deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.